unquestionably the same human. Yes, in the persona of Diana Prince, she is vulnerable. Yes, I do believe that the Sardor will be quite effective. Good, we have her. Don't worry, you'll have your fun. I'm doing you a favor, Diana. This way, there'll be no pain. Now, Wonder Woman. It's time to say goodnight. <laughs> Welcome to episode nine of First Strike, the Invasion podcast, the podcast that covers the 1988. A crossover event from DC Comics called Invasion, Explanation Mark. We cover every issue, of course, but every tie-in comic as well until we get to the end. Until these damn aliens are off our planet. Exactly. Today, I'm Siskoid. <laughs> I'm Bass. Like every day. Yeah. Like most days. And But today, we're going to cover Wonder Woman number 25. Wonder Woman! da 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 <laughs> the, the title is The Burning School by writer George Perez with a special assist from Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis and we'll see why penciler Chris Marinan who is introduced to DC Comics at this point there's a special introduction uh, in the credits inker Will Bleiberg letterer John Costanza colorist Petra Scottese assistant editor Art Young and editor Karen Berger cover by George Perez so this was the post-crisis uh, Wonder Woman, the first era of post-crisis Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman is basically reborn. She's uh, she's like a new hero mm-hmm. in, in this universe. She hasn't been with the Justice League all this time, that kind of thing. And she's um, been rede- well redesigned. It's a very classic, the very classic costume. But she, yeah. her world has been redesigned by George Perez to be a lot more Greek mythology inspired. She's got a different uh, supporting cast. Some of the old ones as well, but you know, Steve Trevor's an older man in this, and so he's playing different relationships uh, throughout the the first few years of the series. And at number twenty five, he's been two years in, and it's still George Perez writing, even though he's not doing the interior art. He's doing still doing the covers, which always look amazing. Amazing. Are you a Wonder Woman? I am a Wonder Woman fan. I love Wonder Woman. Always loved Wonder Woman. Really discovered uh, Wonder Woman when uh, Gail Simone was writing Wonder Woman. Yeah, that's that's, that's when I. That's my favorite. Era. Well, well, we'll talk about our favorite eras yeah. of, of the character uh, at the back of the show. Yeah, as but, we always but yeah, do. I'm a Wonder Woman fan. She's uh, she's part of the big three, the the, the Trinity. I mean, she's uh, I've always liked her. Yep, same here. I'm also a Wonder Woman fan, and uh, we'll get to explore that bit later. This issue is concurrent, or at least partly concurrent, with the our episode seven. That is to say, JLI number 22. Because there's the same, there's a mission there with Wonder Woman present. Wonder Woman takes off with different Justice League members. And here we'll see what happens to those characters. Because we we left them in the in JLI, yeah. they're split up. This is the other part of that story. Exactly. Let me get into a little synopsis. Yeah, well, we're going to, it's kind of a big synopsis. We might just do it in two parts. Yeah, let's just do it in two parts. Because like the, like the Flash issue had done. Yeah, this is basically a two-part this is a two-parter. In yeah, the- there's what Wonder Woman is up to, and then she joins the Justice League, and there's the action, yeah. the bigger action part. Yeah, and, and both sides of this story are, are interesting in their own. We, and yeah. feature different aliens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? So, okay, here's the, the first part of the issue. On an island in the South Pacific, Edda Candy is running from her post as it goes up in flames, trying to keep ahead of a ships trying to blast her and the secret transmissions she carries. Meanwhile, on Amazon Island, Menelipe the Oracle is having distressing visions and thunder booms out beyond the magic portal between Themyscira and Patriarch's world. When Wonder Woman investigates, she finds Tenegarian ships trying to blast their way in. Even those that succeed are destroyed, however. It's like a vortex of death thing. Then in Wakefield, Massachusetts, the military and Black Canary are waiting for Diana at Julia Capitalis' home. This is a friend of Wonder Woman's at this point. When she arrives, she's told about Edda's situation and told to rendezvous with the Justice League in Fiji to deal with the problem. Steve Trevor would go, but he's been seconded to Captain Adam elsewhere. That's a yeah. little setup for Invasion Number 2. Yeah. This all follows the um, previous issue of Wonder Woman that we did cover. There's yeah. a little bit where Etta Candy intercepted a transmission from the aliens. Yeah, and, and this is what? Uh, like, issue, like, like, our first episode? Our first episode was, like, preludes and yeah. things that weren't 
stamped invasion, but were really setting up invasion. Exactly. So Edda's problems were already set up. It's now time for Wonder Woman to, to solve the problem. Yeah. That happens in the second part. So in this first part, which features uh, Edda, of course, but also well, this is the Amazon Island, and this is a hard start to a story. I mean, because the little Edda Candy start is just—it's a prequel to what's coming up later on in the story. We're going to see first have a story before, yep. but I mean, she's being black. People are trying to kill her, and she's running for her life. Right, her so, commanding officer's already dead. It's like yeah. lasers from the sky destroying this island she's on. Uh, just to make sure that whatever plans she's captured yeah. uh, don't get out to, to our Earth allies. And, I mean, this sets up how important this is just because, I mean, they're really trying to kill her. They're not trying to capture anything. They're trying to blast the hell out of her. So there's, like, an urgency there to get to know the second part of the story. But the first part of the story sets up Wonder Woman beautifully, I think, for that time. Uh, we're on, uh, uh, how do you say that? Temescaira? Temescaira. That's, that's how I'm going to pronounce Temescaira? Temescaira? Temescaria? Amazon Island? <laughs> Amazon Island. I'm going to call it Amazon Island for the rest of the show. And you know what? I really enjoy... I, I didn't really read a lot of Wonder Woman back in that time. I remember Wonder Woman from that time. But I really love the Greek mythology part. Uh, this is where she gets rid of the invisible plane. Invisible jet, if I... That, uh, that was not a... Yeah, that was not a thing until much, much, much later in this continuity. Yeah, so uh, she has, like, winged boots. Yep, she can which fly. Awesome. I love that. There's, like, this feel of going towards more Greek mythology, which is... Which I liked. So then there's the the whole... Uh, the Thenagarians are trying to blast their way to... This is part of the invasion's plan, is yeah. to make sure the superheroes are out of the game. You know, we want everyone with the metagene to surrender... Uh, and so people who are wild cards, the Amazons among them, all these these yep. wild cards are too dangerous. So by attacking Amazon Island directly, but at this point, and I hadn't realized this, you know, why don't we always, uh, why don't we see it on Google Maps? Amazon Island <laughs> is behind some sort of protective magical shield, yeah, which uh, includes like dark clouds that well, uh, you can crash into. It's if, um, it's basically the chaos, what they call it, the chaos zone or something like that. Yeah. It, just, this is a very Star Trek-y sequence yeah. for me because the Tanagarians have ships that look like Romulan warbirds. Yeah, exactly. And when they head into the nebula, that you know, that's what it looks like. It, yeah. Let's head into a nebula and then they crash because it's, you know, it's like a singularity type thing. It's, it's a sequence out of... Star Trek Insurrection or something. So really, Amazon Island is in no real danger. Well, that's the thing. The Thanagarians, they think they're going to invade something. They probably think it's just like a portal where you just go through it and you're, you're right. there. Because Wonder Woman can navigate it, obviously. But she actually knows the chaos. She she navigates the chaos. There are winds in there and, and it pulls, it pushes. And I'm sure it's possible. I mean, Steve Trevor does crash on Amazon Island at the beginning of everything and sets up the whole thing just as in the original continuity. So it's possible to at least crash land yeah. on uh, on the island. I find the Thanagarians a bit... Um, I mean, they've all got wings. When she starts crashing the ships one into the other, how about you get out? <laughs> well, <laughs> Why don't they... you get out and fight, <clears throat> you know, man to man, woman well, to woman? That's the thing. We, we, I think we, we, we're doing the same thing with the Thanagarians that we did with the Durlins. Okay. You know, Hawkman is a hero type Thanagarian, and these are just soldiers. So I don't think they're a, they're as smart. I don't think they're as quick and probably not as strong as Hawkman is. Yeah. They're, well, they're certainly, they're cannon fodder in this. Yeah. Because we saw with the Justice League story a couple episodes back that the deaths of alien uh, warriors weighed heavy on the Martian Manhunter mm -hmm. and the person he was confiding in was Wonder Woman. So Wonder Woman also has blood on her hands, mm -hmm. although we don't know how in that story because it's part of the this issue. But she had blood on her hands way before the, the Fiji mission. She's yeah. got blood on her hands here because in fighting the Thanagarians, they crash into each other. They, yeah. She's not, you know, really responsible. It does happen on her shift. Because this is, I, and, and I love how they put the Thanagarians uh, against the Amazons. Because we have, like, okay, really yeah. opposites going on. I mean, they're ultra-masculine, ultra uh, chauvinistic, they're macho, you know, they're and they're war-loving, they're warriors, and the Amazons are peace-loving warriors, but are women. So I, I just like how these 
opposites right. just and there's like here. that Egyptian vibe. I mean, obviously yeah. Thanagar has no relation, no clear relationship to the Golden Age Hawkman, uh, especially at this point. But there's still an, an Egyptian motif yeah. that comes with Hawkman. That's part of that bundle and the, the Greek from across the sea. Yeah. So there's a natural um, uh, opposition here. Yeah, they're everywhere uh, in this first part because she's she's going 100 percent defensive on this. She never goes on the offensive. She dodges. She blocks a shot that you know hits another ship that ricochets and hits another ship. But she never really tries to hurt them. No. She dodges stuff. Another ship gets shot. She's always on the defensive, and they're ultra offensive. They're going all in, one hundred percent offensive. And that's why they've got so much friendly fire. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. They all die by their own hands, really. Even though she's a participant in the fight. Well, yeah. She, it's their fault. They're hurting themselves by attacking her. And, and, and I, I like how she never really retaliates. She always just defends. And that's another opposition going on here. So I really like this first part where... And, and this is going to pay off later as well. Yeah. It's, it's part of her motivation. It's clear in her mind when she goes on the next mission that the danger of killing during wartime, that it's either impossible to prevent, uh, but she's still going to try because this, even these events weigh on her heavily. And once they're in the chaos, because one, uh, one ship does get into the chaos and uh, she follows that ship and she's for some reason, I mean, she's Wonder Woman. She, she just doesn't like people dying for no reason, even if she's a warrior and she tries to help them because they can't navigate this. It, it pushes, it pulls, there are winds, there are forces there lightning, all kinds of stuff is uh, is happening in the chaos. She tries to help them. They were shooting at her. She tries to help them, and they still shoot at her, and they meet their ultimate demise. Yeah, they because, get... because they prevent her from helping them. Yeah, and they saw her acting as if they were... If roles were reversed, she would have been trying to kill them, but they don't understand, I think, how uh, somebody that you're fighting against wouldn't want you to get hurt or get killed, and they just shoot her. And you're right that it's a very good introduction to the Wonder Woman character, even though Wonder Woman needs no introduction, yeah. in a sense. But to this era of Wonder Woman, she's practicing her ethics, mm-hmm. which are super important to the character. And that's when those fail, that's when I think she's badly written. She's using uh, all her powers. She's she's using the lasso. She's using the, the bracelets. She's mm-hmm. using the boots. She's using her strength. All of that is in there, just in this first part. Yeah. Never mind the second part. It's full. She's... On Amazon Island, so we see the Greek mythology, we see the her extended cast, mm-hmm. we see that she also has a community uh, over in the States, so she's a character that people gravitate around. Somehow the point of the character is this, she is a unifier, she is a charismatic that people want to be with, mm-hmm. and so in the, in the next sequence when she's in Massachusetts, she's got a whole family there, she's got the Capitalist family who are friends with her, yeah. uh, who are important supporting characters during this era, we've got Steve Trevor's there, we've got Black Canary who is a friend, already a friend from previous stories I suppose. Uh, although this is a, like a strange sequence to me, I, I'm not sure where this fits in Black Canary continuity. I don't see it either. Even the costume is different and at she, this point. She mentions it. Oh, you've never seen me in this costume, which is the original costume. Yeah, with the fishnets. She's in fishnets. But I, I, I just... I seem to remember, you know, she had that uh, 80s costume, that Olivia Newton-John costume in the Justice yeah. League. Which is she, fine. She just left the, she just left the Justice League. And then this is between that, those Justice League issues and when she uh, becomes a bird of prey, where she had a, another different costume, shorter mm-hmm. hairstyle. So I guess she reverted to that costume at some point. Were there stories? I, I, I should have done the research here, but sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Well, maybe Wait. Ryan Daly can fill us in. He yeah. is the Black Canary expert. So Black Canary's there, but she's not going to join the mission. She's just like a facilitator uh, about this whole invasion thing because really Wonder Woman sent out a call to the, the Hawk people mm-hmm. because Thanagarians were involved and the Hawk people have joined the Justice League on these missions, so she's going to join them with the Justice League. I mean, it, it's, it's all these little pieces that come together. Yeah. I think Black Canary's kind of like an some kind of liaison to, yeah. to the JLI or... Even though she's not an active part of the yeah. team right now. 
So you've, you've got Wonder Woman, you know, kind of, she's friends with other heroes. Even though this is early in her career, she's already friends with other heroes. Yeah. She's making more friends throughout the issue. She's that person. We're seeing that whole world come together in the span of uh, the first 10 pages. Yeah. In the first 10 pages, we see her be a warrior. We see her being really human, even though she's made of clay. I, <laughs> I think at this point, is mm-hmm. she still made of clay? I think so, yeah. We see her being hopeful because in this panel, I mean, in on page uh, 10, when she meets up with everybody, she's two minutes late, but she comes in with a smile. She just fought off three Thanagarian death birds. I don't know what the ships <laughs> yeah, are called. That's, but, that's a good name. Uh, and, and Terror birds. Terror birds. And she she, uh, she comes in with a smile, says hello to everybody. She's 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 just like a beacon of hope for some odd reason. She's I just love this Wonder Woman. I'm in love with this Wonder Woman. Oh geez, I will not tolerate this. So let's look at the second half where we really do join um, the Justice League narrative. Yep. In Fiji, scenes from July uh, 22, repeat, but this time we follow Wonder Woman on her mission to save Edda. She's accompanied by Guy Gardner, who really doesn't care for her and her pacifist ways, and Rocket Red, still trying to figure out his new apocalypsian suit. Guy saves Edda in the nick of time and the heroes succeed, but not without loss of life on the Kundish side, despite Diana's best efforts to keep casualties to a minimum. We then read join JLI 22 in time for the heroes to be called on the big meeting that will be in invasion number two. I really glossed over it because it's a big action piece. Yeah. Uh, but we can deconstruct it. First, like the first couple pages of this are really a mirror of the JLI stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's some inconsistencies, but much of the same dialogue, just redistributed. And if you look at the, the two pages, the two comics, you'll find that it's slightly differently drawn, but same general giving yeah. the orders, pointing at... It's the same kind of a pacing to the issue, just drawn by a different person. Yeah, exactly. It's a lot of that. I think the, the biggest inconsistency, and it was mentioned in the uh, comment section last episode by a um, listener, is that they've screwed up. I think it's a lettering problem. They've screwed up who says what during the big meeting yeah, of yeah. the heroes. So it's the same comedy, the same kind of stuff. But here, it's not the same dialogue, but Fire and Ice's attitudes have been switched. Yeah. So it, here... It still works, though. Yeah, no, it's not a complete... It's yeah. inconsistent, but it's not a total reversal still. In the July story, Fire was kind of jealous. Yeah. And caddy about Wonder Woman and Ice was um, well. Why wouldn't they? Well, you know, she she yeah. responds well to Wonder Woman. In this, it's reversed. It's yeah. Ice is the jealous one and fires and give give her a chance. Similarly, you've got uh, what is it? They switch Mister Miracle for Hawk Woman in a conversation. So yeah, a beetle, please control your hormones. This was Mister Miracle's line, but he's way across the the panel in this one, and it's it's Hawk Woman telling Blue Beetle this. I mean, that's a bit of a lettering problem. Probably the art didn't follow the same sequence. The characters were in the same spots. But it's all the same attitudes, really. It's all yeah. the, the story hasn't changed. Yeah, we didn't throw the book away because of this. <laughs> no, this is small points, yeah. small dialogue changes, and then the whole mission is completely separate. So uh, there are no more inconsistencies, really, until we get to the last page. And again, it's very, very small. It's yeah. like they were on it; they were clearly on a beach in JLI, but here they're not really yeah. clearly on a beach. It's very, very small stuff. Yeah, uh, camera angles, maybe camera angles. Camera angles, right? Cover that. So the story itself. I mean, the mission itself. Well, the mission is to go get Lieutenant Candy. They need to get that code and that person out of there. <laughs> I just, I just love to hate Guy Gardner. I, I mean, this guy, he's just, he's just a jerk. He's just a, a macho chauvinistic jerk and doesn't play well with others. Yeah. Even though this is uh, a bit into the JLI. It's a couple of years. Yeah. So he should be a bit better at playing with others. I think he's good at playing with, I say playing, but working with the JLI. But I don't think he likes Wonder Woman. Well, there's a thing where Guy Gardner, Guy Gardner's got problems. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah. You think? <laughs> Some brain damage. Some. Some brain damage, which is unfortunate for people who identify with his politics. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know what? <laughs> I think it fits. But anyway, he's definitely more on the wingnut side of things. Yeah. He's not just a conservative. He's, uh, he's a little extreme. Brain damage or not. Whether we, we say that's because of that. I mean, he's always been, he's probably yeah. always been. He's always uh, talking like somebody right. who's drunk. <laughs> That's that's what's going on. But the thing with Guy Gardner is that he is a superhero. Mm-hmm. 
a competent one in a world where being a superhero is, uh, in large part, a liberal thing. That's why I don't understand, and uh, I don't want to get into politics too much, but I don't understand extreme conservatives liking superhero comics. Or are are you not getting the correct lessons out of these? And more and more, I mean, there well, are more yeah. conservative writers writing comics, who, uh, who, promoting a different ethos, perhaps. But classic comic books were yeah. born out of 1930s liberalism, yeah. FDR liberalism, and are about human rights, are about respecting others, are about... I mean, the, the, the lessons the superheroes teach us are like uh, like Star Trek, which we keep mentioning because there's aliens in this. I mean, we like Star Trek. Yeah, sure. These are lessons that seem to be on the left, especially in today's climate. Where yeah. The left is more associated with especially in tolerance, yeah. diversity, and this is what we look for in superhero comics and superhero values. Yeah. Now, Guy Gardner is an exception. He is. He is a very conservative superhero in a world where all other superheroes are written as liberals. Yeah, yeah. Or as liberal-like. He makes Hawkman look liberal. I mean, this is how... This I, is how I, on the yeah, I, I know they've always put, like, uh, in the classic uh, JLA, there's, like, Hawkman was the conservative to Green Arrow's extreme yeah. uh, liberal, but... Really, I don't think Hawkman was all that. No, he probably conservative. Did. Probably not. But he's it's just reacting to the how far left Green Arrow was written, and and really those conversations were yeah, they were very complex politically. But I, I I think it's really thrive on contrast in this comic book. I mean, they put Rocket Red, which is basically the opposite of Guy Gardner. Rocket Red is yeah, uh, he's a funny, yeah. fun, kind of awkward Russian. He's he's a Soviet. So obviously he's a communist to Guy Gardner's uh, Americanism. Exactly. American he's... triumphalism. Yeah, that's definitely a um so Guy Gardner is in an international team, JLI, yeah. right? And in this little uh, snippet, he's teamed up with two heroes who are not Americans. No, exactly. And he's bristling at their what he perceives as their weakness. Wonder Woman's uh, empathy and yeah. pacifism, or at least express pacifism. Obviously, she's gonna she's gonna fight as well as any of the others. She's gonna try to prevent deaths, but when they occur, I you mean, know, she she's still a warrior. Technically, she's gonna fight better than any of them because she's a born. I mean, she was born. She's being modeled yeah. to be a warrior, cre- cre- crafted to be a warrior. Yeah, and she's been from a warrior culture. Yeah, exactly. So she's. I mean. She she can kick anybody's ass in this, right? And Red uh, Rocket Red is still learning to use his suit, yeah. his new suit. So the suit kind is of, cool, also. It, yeah, it looks it's cool. It's um, it's a little less goofy than the original. Yeah, but still got a bucket head and all that. Still has a bucket head, but it's still very apocalyptic. I, I, I like yeah, sort yeah, of. I, 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 I mean, mean, like there there are things in, on this thing like there are just weird like the third eye yeah which is like it's got a like, hexagonal shape which may, but there's i mean to me apocalypse should really the apocalypse style should have like those big kirby molecules on it or yeah, yeah. or seem to be from a different type of comic like it should be like a west <laughs> like a cowboy costume <laughs> or, uh like the renaissance assassin that kind of that kind of stuff that you see on apocalypse all the time it's fine but yeah it's super dangerous because yep. he's not pressing the right buttons yeah he doesn't really know how it works yeah but he he seems to be fine with that i don't <laughs> Yeah, everybody learning. seems to be fine with that. The thing with with Rocket Red is that he is a an idealist and yeah. a kind of naive, simple soul. Yeah, uh, he's like very much the nicest person you'll ever meet, and he comes from what was at this still at this point America's big enemy. Yeah, that's the contrast here, where Guy Gardner is an American but a jerk. While the Soviet, who's supposed to be the big bad, normally is is nice. The so, good guy's a jerk, and the bad guy, quote unquote, is very very nice. Right. So, so I, I just we're love not these saying contracts. this is like a political statement. It's just no, these characters. No. Usually, they're interacting with lots of other characters, many of them Americans. Well, I think I think it's more like a a, a storyline type thing. Where I mean, you like contrast, you like oppositions in in good stories because anything can happen be- between these people. But you know, it's... sure, because there, there's an arc here where the it's an old trope, but you expect it and it happens. Where guys begrudging respect of Wonder Woman, he dismisses her here. 
at the beginning, so eventually she must prove herself in some yeah. way uh, so that he ends up respecting her. And at the same time, she compromises herself for him because when he, his life seems in danger, he's the one who saves Etta Candy yeah. uh, from a blast. Wonder Woman can't get there in time. Even though, you know, up to this point, they've been sort of at odds. She's yeah. lassoed him to, to stop him from killing. Yeah, and he's still being a jerk. So that means that if he's entangled in the lasso of truth... <laughs> That's his truthful self. That is, that <laughs> is his truthful self. So uh, so you've got... Uh, eventually, she tries to save Edda from a uh, laser beam from a She's blast, not, just not quick enough. But Guy saves her with a uh, force shield. Yeah, he bubbles her. And then, because he's in danger now, or seems in danger... She knocks a uh, ship over with her strength. She knocks a full-sized ship. With an elbow. With an elbow. With just like a shoulder roll. And then that ship crashes, all hands lost. Presumably all hands lost. Kun's dead. So she compromises her own self, her own ethics, to save him. And of course, she didn't need to save him. It's just like we don't know each other very well. Uh, he would have been saved by the ring automatically, blah, blah, blah. He was fine. So she didn't need to save him, but that doesn't change anything that she did, and she did so by compromising her own ethics. So they meet somewhere in the middle in that way. The conversation at the end of the issue, when she and uh, Martian Manhunter talk about the blood on their hands, and that takes on a new meaning. Yeah. Because now we know that Wonder Woman 2 had to make those sacrifices and that yeah. in the JLI issue, you might have thought, mm, you know, she's, she's a warrior, she's warrior born, this is part of war, and she accepts it more readily than John Jones does. But here we find out, I think, that it's she, yeah. just as bad for her. She's, yeah, she, but she's a comforter to him. She doesn't let on. That's the kind of character she is. Yeah. Um, well, I think yeah. her role is more of a, I think she takes on just naturally a leader role where, I mean, she has weight on her, but she doesn't have to give it to other people. Mm. She just takes weight from everybody. And, and It's interesting that she and Martian Manhunter go off on the side to, to talk about this. Both are the leaders. Both mm-hmm. She's a, like a natural leader. She doesn't have a team, but she, I mean, she leads anyone yeah. she's with. And Martian Manhunter is the leader of the Justice League. That together, they can share that burden as the leaders of their their separate missions, but not involve the others in that. Well, I think they understand that they are a bit of cut above, you know, they're, they're more powerful. They have bigger responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. I think Martian Manhunters sees the natural born leader, which is Wonder Woman. And she probably admires, uh, Martian Manhunter because uh, he's always, he has this imposter syndrome all the time. He doesn't think he can be the leader, but he's, he's a great one. And I think she admires him for that humble side. I'm thinking maybe I'm putting thoughts in their brains, but I think that's why they can, they can talk freely or a little bit more freely together than, you know, I don't think that John Jones would open up to Beetle. Not because Beetle's not fun and, and smart and compassionate. It's just that, you know, he wouldn't, he can't relate. It's very much like a, like Beetle is probably the most human on the team. Yeah. The most ordinary schmo. He's, he's the reader. Yeah. yeah. He's a nerd just like, just like us. And so Martian Manager has like a lot more distance. While Wonder Woman is also an outsider. She's also from another world, so to yeah. speak, even though she's Earth uh, bred. There, there's more of a relationship there. And there is a small, small change. Uh, not an inconsistency, but a small change in that conversation between them. Because he said, and he's always a little bit maudlin, but he says, yes, uh, you know, this is stuff that happens in war. And he says, but why must we always take such pleasure in it? You know, that's like the big, um, yeah, the big moral at the end of that. Uh, JLI issue. And here, because we're with Wonder Woman, this is her book, we're privy to her thoughts. This conversation is like there's like a silence in the original, in the other issue. There's a silence between them after that. He says this and there's just a contemplative silence. Here, the silence is filled by her thought, which is pleasure, which I find ambiguous. I don't know what... I think I'm I think, not sure what's hap- what she's she means by it, or what what her surprise is supposed to be. And and I think that's exactly what they want to do with because they don't say more than just this one word pleasure. And and why does she? It's made to be ambiguous. I think that the the idea of this is not to give you an answer. This is, you're going to think about this for a while. Is she surprised that perhaps the Martian Manhunter found killing pleasurable? I, I my interpretation of this because this is a great this is a big moment. Because they don't know each other very well, no. And I don't think the Martian Manhunter actually meant that. But is that like a strange? Are you saying this? Which she's not addressing it, but are you 
John Jones saying you you found it pleasurable, or is she is she perhaps uh, questioning her own warrior fury? Yeah, and it is a victory. I mean, they had they had this little bit of a victory, so they killed enemies, even not non willingly, but they were victorious. They did accomplish their mission. So there's there are mixed feelings in there. I mean, she had to compromise herself, but she got it done. So there are mixed feelings in there, and depending on which is the prominent feeling maybe if you're really content with i don't know you're you're doing the mission you'll find pleasure in it but it can be mixed up in your reasoning where you can maybe think that the pleasure comes from killing which is not the case i think in wonder woman's case or even john jones's case yeah but yeah it is ambiguous yeah and i mean maybe there is a misunderstanding between them because both characters are islands unto themselves. Yeah. They're already outsiders, and obviously they don't share the same culture at all. No. Um, even though, though they share that outsider status. We also see in the, the final panel, it's the same joke repeated from the other issue, but we see there's a big difference between the pacing in a Justice League book, yeah. where comedy and character are very much front focus. Because in the, in the JLI book, comedic timing is everything. The timing makes it funny. It, it kind of releases that that tension from the really hard discussion they had in this one we don't have that tension it's like the those comedy implants to just to make the two stories relate to each other the comedy implants by giffen Demetrius are kind of at odds with perez's normal writing style yeah so and also the the art i mean that's why kevin mcguire is such a terrific artist on that series is all the expressions the body postures everything works in favor of that comedy, where uh, this artist, Chris Marinan, that that's not one of his strengths necessarily. No, no, or he's, he's not. He's not that up. bad though. He's pretty, he's pretty good. Yeah, the I had to, to look him up because the the name didn't really spark any memories. Uh, he before this worked on Eclipse's uh, Champions comic, which was based on the role playing game, and then that's where he cut his teeth, I suppose. And then he worked on Wonder Woman for a year and a half. From this issue. So it's introducing him to this comic. And then after that, pretty much Marvel, lots of Marvel projects okay. up to this day. Uh, so, yeah, no, I think Marinan did uh, a good job on yeah. on the characters and on the action. I think he's got good body postures and mm-hmm. expressions. Uh, I, I just love also how not all the women are the same in this. They all look different. They all look like ladies and, and women, but they're not all built the same way they're not all Betty and Veronica which is it's a thing I like I, I think like. it was also very much part of the design of this era of Wonder Woman yeah. where her supporting cast have very different looks uh, different ages uh, you know like Julia Capitellis is an older woman Etta Candy was uh, somewhere between Wonder Woman and Julia uh, Mindy Meyer with different supporting cast members who were female it wasn't just like differently colored hair yeah yeah. they had different builds they had different uh facial features you know if you're following that design then you should be true to it so wonder woman is uh, look, just look here at black canary and wonder woman yeah like two faces in um in close-up during their scenes black canary has obviously there's a blonde and a, a brunette but but black, her features are different yeah black canary has more almond eyes yeah wonder the, woman has big doll-like eyes yeah the 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 lips don't have the same no. curvature and the nose is different the nose is different when you see them in profile they, they uh, are two different women wonder and, woman and has that's a great. flatter grecian nose and, and the same for the men we're not talking yeah. about the men much but it's it's true of the men as well that yeah, uh, the artist can actually I, do a lot. I think that Marinan really did try to have like great facial expressions. Uh, didn't always work though. Like uh, there's one panel where where Wonder Woman just shoots off uh, full speed to go meet the JLI, and I think he was trying to go for determination uh, in in one of the panels. And it's a it, little cross-eyed, and, and a little cross-eyed, and it looks a bit more like angry. But I mean, I do enjoy the 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 attempt. Of trying to, you know, doing expressions, trying to do the, the, the body language also, but that's, that's very complicated. You know, you have to, you have to know what body language is. Yeah. There are some, to... there are some weaker panels. Yeah, yeah. Sure. You can, you can see it's an artist still at the start of his career. But I mean, I think it's a great, a great start. Yeah. He's better in close up than he is in when characters get smaller. And I think that may be also part, a problem with the inking where the, further they get from the camera the finer lines get lost in mm-hmm. the printing process we're still 80s yeah, yeah. printing processes they are what they are uh, the kuns how do you, you, you like the kuns we call them the kuns but in this they really look like they kind of look like the hun so i think it's the kun 
Kuns. I think it's the Kuns. Uh, yeah, well, no, the Kuns, um, I mean, they're fine. Yeah. Every time we see the Kuns, they seem to have different they're always armors. Different. They're always different <laughs> this colors. Time, this time, I think they look a little bit more like the Huns. I mean, they have this, like, mustache thing. Yeah. It's not really a mustache. It's more like... Uh, well, it's, it's it, a Fu Manchu kind of thing. Well, but I don't think it's... I think it's dark. I think it's like, a, a you know, how their mouth is... Or their jaws. No, but you, or you can see the mustache going over the. Kind of looks like that. The but helmet, but the guns always kind of look different. So I'm thinking maybe they've got lots of different units. They're so much, you know, they're warriors I, with different units. I enjoy and the blue, way blue unit, <laughs> the blue unit, blue Kirby unit. They're the ones in Fiji. But I, I mean, I enjoy the fact that you think they're all uh, different units. I think they're all <laughs> kind of. Not really in the mind of the people who are drawing them. But then again, that's because I always think that every alien always looks the same. Every time, yeah. every time there's an alien yeah. invasion, they're all the same. So, Marinan kind of draws them like hunchbacks, like short humpback, hunchbacks. Yeah. It's, there are different types. Yeah. yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm okay with that. Yeah. And he's got a nice, um, the flow of it. I mean, obviously Perez probably plots right down to the panel structure because well, he's probably, an artist. Yeah. Full credit to the whole team. But the, the whole, while all this Wonder Woman, Guy Gardner drama is going on, Red, Rocket Red is basically on his own. Yeah. Fighting. And he's always in the bottom of the page. There's like, there's a little mini story going on just in the, the lower panels where his own fight is going on, often silently, uh, as a contrast to what's happening. And I mean, yeah. he's, he's kicking butt. That armor is doing it. <laughs> It's, yeah, but he's trying to throw force fields, capturing force fields, and it's like laser, like destructive blasts. So yeah. He doesn't know what the buttons do yet, or however those suits work. Exactly. About I don't know about buttons. But, but he can take on the, the cons. So. I don't know if you got tongue toggles or... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how that works. Willpower, I mean... But he captures a couple of cons, so we'll see how this ultimately relates to the larger plot, because they do get the plans back, but yeah. the plans got drenched. So the heroes are uncertain if the information, the data is still viable. Yeah. But Rocket Red, well, everybody else is killing everyone. Rocket Red does manage to capture two Kuns who might be interrogated. And we'll see if these elements return as part of the Allies strategy. And if you were wondering, Kuns are hairy. Uh, this one's bald, so... Yeah, testosterone, a lot of testosterone. <laughs> Any other thoughts on this issue? Uh, I really liked it, actually. Uh, maybe because it's... It's the combination of uh, two things I really like. I really like Wonder Woman. A more slender Wonder Woman in this than uh, than the later years or actual right now. But still strong and everything we like about Wonder Woman. So I, I loved it. I love the JLI. I like the way they kept some of the banter, but to a minimum. We still get that JLI feel to it. So yeah, I really liked it. We didn't talk about the cover much, but... Um, oh, it's a fantastic cover. I mean, it's George Perez. It's, it's very George Perez. It's got a giant spaceship in the back. It's got all sorts of... Shiny lines go- coming off the uh, the hero's powers and lassos and rings, and you know fire in the background. It's kind of odd. They look like giants, and Etta Candy's about to get stomped. It's a combination piece. Yeah, she's and... she's really running from the um, the yeah. armada. Yeah, it's a nice pinup. It's a pinup, and so you uh, you know primes us for the rest of the issue, which I I agree was yeah. well was better than I thought it might be. Oh, I was just presently surprised. And I, I know it's weird to say that when this was like an iconic era, but uh, we'll talk about our thoughts on Wonder Woman and her different yeah. eras in the next segment. For now, we'll take a small pause for a, another podcast you might want to listen to. And listen to it. They're nice. It was a golden age. Our Martian civilization was at the height of its peace and prosperity. White Martians came from beneath the planet's surface, bringing fire from the planet's guts, and they burned us all. I lost my family. Came to Earth when my civilization was destroyed. Detective John Jones is what you might call my human alter ego. I'm not the only thing from outer space that's come, but right now I'm the only thing that can stop alien invasion. My name is John Jones. Also known as the Martian Manhunter. I'm Mars' sole survivor. There's a reason for that. I will defend Earth. The podcast available to iTunes. Shout Engine and the Internet Archive. Okay, Wonder Woman has had a long life. She's, well, yeah. Uh, she's more than... <laughs> she's, she's been celebrated uh, for her 75th birthday? Is that, <laughs> is that, is that it? She's past 75? She's, yeah, she's yeah. close, yeah. Yeah, no, she's, uh, she's had her 75th birthday. So many, many, many different people have tried mm-hmm. and not all successfully 
managed to uh, to do Wonder Woman. She's notorious for being infamous, even for being difficult to write, which I find kind of ridiculous. But it is uh, kind of odd because I do I do love this character. Mm-hmm. I, I love what she represents, and in many appearances, uh, I've enjoyed her. But I've not read every single. Yeah. I can't. Same here. I, I can't because it's too long, but also because a lot of it is wretched. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Who's your Wonder Woman? Gail Simone's. Uh, when she was right, that's when I really discovered Wonder Woman. Okay. As and a character. Obviously, a character. you knew she existed. Yeah, yeah, but I knew she existed. I knew of her, but I didn't feel I, I knew her very much. I read a lot of uh, Gail Simone's Wonder Woman and uh, loved it, really loved it. I kind of liked the effort or what they tried to maybe do with the New 52 Wonder Woman, where she's an actual demigod. The Buffy the Vampire Slayer premise where she's uh, going to fight monsters. Like the yeah. mythology is all full of monsters and the gods are monstrous. Yeah. The Brian Arizello, Cliff Chang yeah, series. Yeah, I, I kind of like that. I liked it. I, I like the mean, first part of it. It's It went on too long. Yeah. That's, that's, that's like, it's like the interminable story arc that uh, by, by the end uh, and when they were kind of switching artists because it's, yeah. it stopped. I mean, I read it all the way through because I wanted to see what how it ended, but it went on way too long. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why, but to be honest, I kind of liked how Superman was represented. You know, how he's just a uh, mortal and all of a sudden he's, even the gods go, oh, this guy's tough. So I kind of liked that little moment for Soups. But I really enjoyed Wonder Woman late 2000s. Yeah. I knew a little bit about Wonder Woman before. Uh, a little bit about this one, the, the late 80s. Uh, Wonder Woman because I really enjoy going back to the Greek mythology and this is what I really enjoy about it and not just throwing Amazons and like a bunch of ladies just eating grapes somewhere they're actually <laughs> warriors they're strong and I like how they just got rid of all the men because you know they want peace I kind of enjoy that but uh I honestly don't really know much except for that so I really like what I saw in here yeah I well it's me too because I only bought the George Perez, Wonder Woman, sporadically. When Crisis hit and all the, the decided to change a lot of the heroes, I made it my mission to try each of those series. You know, get in on the ground floor that was attractive to me. That's why I didn't really read Batman mm-hmm. at the time. Because, you know, he didn't change. There wasn't like a re- refresh. It was just the same thing. You know, it didn't really make me buy more than a couple issues a year. Wonder Woman I tried. I got like the first issue for sure. Maybe a few others. Uh, from the beginning, and despite you know liking George Perez as a as an artist, as a writer, left me kind of cold. Okay, so I have an interest in mythology. I like Greek mythology, of course, and I was ready to like this Wonder Woman and this take on it. It did work for me as a whatever it was, as a sixteen year old or whatever. And so I, I bought this issue because it was an invasion, and because basically because the Justice League was in it, Let's, which which is a great choice. Yeah, because I've got this issue, but not like the one before, the one after. I didn't have those issues in my collection prior to this, so it never really worked for me. And then eventually the the comic um, went on to to have other writers, but I wasn't following it really. So I would try it from time to time. So I know that like Greg Rucka has a seminal and a very important run on Wonder Woman and he's writing it again now okay. so that's something to probably check out uh, because he can he's good at doing a female voice which I think is what Gail Simone really brought to the character well, so, yeah. an actual female voice but she's good at that she's very good at well hey she's good at writing men too so I don't know yeah she, she has a tendency to go a little crazy on, on plots like really weird stuff like the <laughs> you know like the albino talking apes in, in her Wonder Woman run, what what is that about? That's just elements of fun. Yeah. But when you hear the voice of the characters, their thoughts, their uh, what they represent to the world, there's no one, I don't think there's anyone better to, to do female characters. Uh, Birds of Prey, this. Yeah. So I really liked her run, and but one of the only runs, you know, I read all the way through. So the Greg Rucka stuff, I just, every time I open one of those books, the art is whatever. So it, I never really picked it up. To see Wonder Woman as really this peacemaker and unifier, he really brought that to the character. Okay. Uh, it was a lot more about human interest stories, I think, than superhero action, from what I've seen. So I may, I may be wrong on this, but uh, he wrote her for quite a while, and, and now he's doing it again. So there, there's some interest there, I think. Something to discover for me. Uh, I read the John Byrne, or part of the John Byrne run, where he tried to bring her back to really solid superhero roots, very action-oriented. I got bored with it, because at this point, Byrne was 
I don't know, doing splash pages. It was like two panels per page. I'm sorry, but you know, that's, yeah. it's not enough for me. And he wasn't, and he, you know, he brought back the invisible plane and uh, he made those elements more important, like the iconic Wonder Woman we know from what we would know from Super Friends or the uh, Linda Carter show or, okay. uh, or even uh, Justice League, the cartoon, which all had uh, good Wonder Woman. I think I probably met Wonder Woman in Super Friends. Yeah, yeah. M- me too. I, yeah. That's where I, I never read Wonder Woman, but I, I know the Wonder Woman from the cartoons. That's basically... Like, I watched the show I have on DVD, and I watched, like, the first season. Uh, I probably haven't seen very many episodes, like, back in the day. I was too young for it. Yeah. Uh, and it probably wasn't, you know, airing on French language TV, which is no. all we really had, <laughs> or all we really could understand at the time. But the, it's like we were talking about it during the break. Uh, Linda Carter is very much what the power of that show is the same as uh, Melissa Benoist in Supergirl. It's that, it's that kind of sincerity in the yeah. role. It's like a kind of a naive character, vulnerable, but powerful. Yeah. Uh, and represents very positive qualities. So, so you're watching Wonder Woman or those old shows. I mean, the plots are very, rather primitive. Well, yeah. As far as television as we know it today. But the same could be said of the Supergirl show where it's like a formulaic, and especially now that Arrow and Flash already in before her, it's all the same kind of formula. Yeah, yeah. So it's not about the plot so much as that the power of that character and what they bring to it. So I think Wonder Woman was is kind of like that. Those old shows, Linda Carter has the same freshness and openness. She was the same kind of actress too. You know, like a sort of like an actor with less experience, perhaps. Yeah. But fit the look and then fit the ethics of it, the message of it. Yeah. But really, my the first Wonder Woman I probably like really, really liked. I, mean, I read some Bronze Age Wonder Woman and was the Justice League one from the uh, the Justice League cartoon. Yeah, so that was the first Wonder Woman and really, you know, okay, the, this is a character I like. I liked like that the tease the relationship between her and Bruce Wayne, and I loved yeah. all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, you know what? I loved her too. She was like more of an established Wonder Woman as herself. She wasn't trying to find her hero voice or something like she was, and she was laid back just enough to you know. Trying to get Bruce all riled up or try to get him off kilter or something. And I really enjoyed, I really, really enjoyed that relationship in exception, you know, because I really hate the Superman Wonder Woman. If you really wanted to hear more about this particular subject, uh, just listen to the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcast, which we are both, we're co-host with two other people. Episode two and then, you know... Every episode for a while in the comments section where there is massive talk about uh, whether that relationship is um, acceptable that, or not. It's, 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 I think it's nuts. I don't, I really don't like the Superman Wonder Woman thing. None of the Lonely Hearts uh, people like it. So it's forced. It's, ugh, it yeah. has no, so yeah, voice. yeah, because, but, but the Batman Wonder Woman. Oh, that's interesting because they're contrasts and they're kind of opposites, but not. They have the same goals. And they want the same thing, but go about getting them in two different ways. They both have codes of ethics that they follow. And that relationship is great or is interesting. Obviously, the cartoon couldn't really follow that up. That's not the kind of show it was. No, it's not their mandate. That's not what they do. Yeah, they don't have time. But they teased it a lot for us who like to think about that. Yeah, there's at least one episode where they're they're on a date. So, it's cool. So, Wonder Woman has had, like, ups and downs. After the, uh, the Buffy version, David Finch and his spouse did their version for New 52, which I read the first issue and it's just terrible because those people... I'm sorry, cannot write. You know, Wonder Woman's always going between a really good writer and then somebody who just doesn't get it. Yeah. Or wants to take it very superhero, which is fine. Like uh, the way Byrne played it. Uh, let's just bring it, like, make it a superhero comic. He gave her a contextualizing city, gateway city, her own city. That, that kind of thing is can be good. But I think Wonder Woman is supposed to be more than that. I think Wonder Woman is has a symbolic power mm-hmm. that you have to tap into. She is a feminist icon. Yeah. Uh, she was you know, embraced by some of the, the more outspoken 60s, 70s feminists. Uh, it's about all being equal in, in status and humanity. And that's what she stands for. She's an equal to every superhero. And she's going to fight somebody who's going to try to oppress that. But at the same time, being equal doesn't mean being identical. No. And it's... I think she taps into and must tap into a femaleness. Yeah. Where Absolutely. What does it mean to be... Oh, and that's where it gets thick. See, this is where the problem comes. Because 
perception is always, you know, the base of everything. So not every guy understands what it means to be the perfect woman. And <laughs> no, and because we have our thoughts about what we'd like to see as uh, the perfect woman. Yeah. And there is something to be said. I'm uh, reading some, I, I don't think it's off topic. I, <laughs> I'm reading some <laughs> Kathy Acker right now is like a punk poet. Um, novelist. She passed away in the 90s. But really what the book is about, I think her writing is often about, is that the role of women and the role of women in uh, literature and fiction is a role written by men, is a narrative written by men. And so, uh, and that's true in society. It's not just in fiction, but in reality, the female narrative has been scripted by males. And so put them in a different category, put them in an inferior class, uh, put them in uh, spe- specific roles that can be seen as unequal, demeaning, uh, limited, whereas the male narrative is written by males. Yeah. And so uh, we better recognize ourselves and also put ourselves on uh, a higher step, yeah. if you will. And this is, this is true of any minority narrative, uh, really. The yeah. majority writes the narrative, and then you start to believe that narrative. Yeah. And well, after thousands, if not millions of years, we have women thinking of themselves in the male in way. the male perspective. Yeah, exactly. That's the culture of it. So, right? uh, so yeah, Kathy Acker's really writing about this and deconstructing it, and I'm, I'm finding it very insightful. Uh, but it's also a cycle that you can't easily break. So, no. whatever I think of women as equals, and I do, even so, the the differences between the sexes have been scripted for me. Or you can escape it so much, but not totally. Well, you can escape it somewhat by questioning it and, and thinking about it. That's the only... That's I think that's it's where we are right now, yeah. where let's address it as... Understanding that it's there. Right. And it, the more women get a voice in fiction, society, yeah. culture, whatever, the more their own perspective will grow beyond that narrative. Their, their own narrative will be written by yeah. them. And uh, the narrative will be fixed. Basically. As it should. Yeah. So with Wonder Woman, we've got an ideal that some women have embraced, but that ideal is often written by men. And so are, are they men that are tapping into the real female perspective? I mean, that's a question you, you're always asking with Wonder Woman. Yeah. And I think that's why she's difficult to write yeah. in quotation marks. Well, she, I think she demands uh, uh, more thought. I mean, you can't just write her like you would write, I don't know, a Green Lantern issue. She demands more questioning of everything that you think you know. And that's the beauty of Wonder Woman. Yeah. But I think they've attributed certain traits to her, which whether or not they are female, again, quote unquote, because all traits exist in all people. And yeah. it's just what, what you relate to and what you tap into. But those so-called female traits, when brought to the superhero extreme, that's where Wonder Woman starts to really become her own character. And if you write her like just a female Superman, and Superman is compassionate and empathic, yeah. and he's got all those traits, but the better Wonder Woman will always tap into those aspects. Uh, she's not born of a comic called Action Comics. She doesn't have to be an action star, although she is. Yeah. She finds other solutions. She should be the character that, that finds that, you know, will think with her heart before her fists. Well, so, yeah. She's sensational. She's a sensation. And I hate it when we start, and Lonely Hearts it's, is bad for this. Well, work. it's, it's cause we, it, it's but, an issue that we, we have to heart. We try to understand this. This is why we talk about it so much. We try to understand what this is, and that's all I have. <laughs> We just try to understand right. this. And there is like, you know, there is a paradox in a character that dresses in a bathing suit, a sexualized bathing suit, but yet never really. I think the, the worst Wonder Woman is, uh, is always the Wonder Woman that seems over sexualized. Yeah. But Wonder Woman can be in, uh, basically, uh, One Piece. She shows a lot of flesh. Yeah. But it never feels sexualized to me. The, the it's thing, not yeah. about the big breasts or it, there's always something, the better Wonder Woman anyway, the better Wonder Woman has something in her face, in her friendliness and yeah. there's an innocence there that undoes the basic look where other characters might make it seem a little more lusty or... Well, I, don't that's, know. I think that's the thing. And that's why I like the one piece bathing suit Wonder Woman. 
is because Wonder Woman can dress how the hell she wants. And has. It, it, it has nothing to do with her. And if she's sexualized in the better stories, I think if she's sexualized, she is not the one who is sexualizing. You are. As the guy reader who goes, ooh, look at them legs. And ooh. And, and you're not getting it because she can dress how she wants. Your little sexual impulses has nothing to do with her. The when, male gaze. When, when it's off, it's when it's on purpose, where they purposely make her... Artists that trade in uh, butt shots. And, exactly. Yeah. That's that's when it, it's weak, and that's when it's bad. It's when you seem to think that she's trying to seduce you, or, or she's drawn that way. And at that moment, she becomes weaker, because it's normal for somebody to, to look at a woman, a strong woman, and be attracted. But it can't be like, oh, I don't know how to explain it, man. I just, I don't know. <laughs> That I just was a long I, thought not to finish. I, 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 it's this, it's just that the lust part comes from the person who's lusting. It has nothing to do with the other person, but she gets weak when she's written or, or displayed as somebody who's trying to get that lust from you. It's the difference between, I, I, I don't want to open that can, but I will. Uh, it's the difference between nude pictures that are artful and pornography, where it's basically the human body. Both of them are beautiful. Beautiful, but one of them is trying to evoke a sexual impulse in you, whereas the other one is a display of beauty. And one woman can't, she always has to display beauty or the beauty she is, but never try to create a sexual impulse. Yeah, I think one of the, the things that um, people respond to with Wonder Woman is that she's a beautiful, obviously, yeah. she's a gorgeous woman. Yeah. So she's just completely herself. Yeah. This is probably, I mean, she's wearing Amazon fashions. <laughs> so this is, we think this is what, this is what it is. And she's not ashamed of it. Yeah. Nor is she, or perhaps even needs to be, but she doesn't need to hide it to feel safe around men. No. Which is a problem women have now. Uh, yeah. You Big know, time. Flaunting it is seen as an excuse for ill thinking men to accost a woman or let's use the word harass. Not to go any further, but that that's like a, a male excuse. Whereas I can, but we don't have that fear. No. There is never the the risk of someone harassing you because of the way uh, you look necessarily, or no. we don't think of it. Yeah. So women have that in live in that society where this still yeah. happens. But Wonder Woman is that figure where she need not be afraid because she's um, invulnerable. This won't happen to her or shouldn't happen to her and shouldn't happen to anyone. So that's why she's someone to look up to. Yeah. It's she's a character that you would like to be. Well, she's uh, a, she's an ideal. I think she, she I think she's an ethical ideal. I think yeah. she's a symbolic ideal. And not just a physical ideal where yeah. she's not a sexy character. Exactly. Uh, a sexy drawing. She's much more than that and she's someone to emulate. And that's why my, that's what I was trying to say with my long ass yeah, no, thought is that she's, she's more than just beautiful. And when, when it's great, it all comes out. When it's weak, she's only seen as either strong or beautiful and not strong in the moral sense and just like, powerful right. can lift stuff she's a she's a, and, a and, superhero tool and i think it's true for big characters like superman also when he's just seen as an ultra strong character who can beat up anybody well that's just weak uh, the, the the true true power of superman is being uncorruptible it's dealing with uh ethical dilemmas exactly uh it's you know and that's why I don't... if you can do anything yeah which is you know the, the reason why they say superman is hard to write again another yeah. character like that if you can do anything then what challenge well the challenges are all internal the challenge must exactly. must be mental and ethical and so if i can do anything what is the best way to handle a situation since i can use any way i i can use many ways what is the best way to handle something. It's not about choosing, uh, do I do right or wrong? Do I succeed or fail? Which is very black and white. Yeah. It's about, among all of these possibilities, which one do I choose since I can pretty much push uh, towards any direction? I mean, these are just characters that I think the same is for Wonder Woman. These are characters who dictate a lot of thought into the writing process. Yeah. You can't just write them on a whim. Everything and, has to be thought out. And really, the way... Uh, inferior writers have dealt with these guys is 
To depower them. Yeah. To find extra weaknesses for them. Yeah, make them, make them go bad. So getting rid of what you're actually supposed to be trying to, to do in a superhero narrative, let's drop focus from that. This is what you, you're supposed to be looking for as far as story ideas, but instead I'll we'll depower them so I can do, basically do a Batman story with them. I yeah. can do, a, you know, so it's not writing to the characters strengths or iconic symbolic power. Exactly. Exactly. And and Wonder Woman, she she needs these people who can write her as a whole. And that's why it's it's sometimes it's great and sometimes it's just uh, plenty of food for thought. <laughs> I think um we got a lot of food for thought. You can uh don't forget to send your comments uh, on this subject. But um yeah, if you want to leave a comment, please do. You can leave a comment at fireandwaterpodcast.com right there on the blog or of course you can use Facebook because the uh, Fire and Water podcast page uh, exists or if you're going to leave a uh, comment on Twitter please use the hashtag FWPodcast it's much easier to find that way <laughs> The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast in which four guys talk about romance comics and about romances in comics with Siskoid. We're all uh, French Canadians here. Marty. In horror comics, there's often like this little, you know, <laughs> romance tinge, I guess. Okay. Bass. <laughs> we oh, just yeah. turned on him. <laughs> and yours truly, Fern. I'm very aroused. Featuring the overproduced wonder that is romance comics theater every episode. Dan, I knew it couldn't last from the first day you eyeballed me when I reported to work. It wouldn't matter if I washed in laundry soap and came to work in a burlap sack. I'd turn you on. And you have the same effect on me. I... I do? The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, available at lonelyheartspodcast.wordpress.com and on iTunes. We had a comic book And now letters from the front! Letters from the front! Now I know it sounds like Bass is right here with me, but uh, we did take a break, and due to time pressures, uh, I'm having to do the letters uh, by myself. So let's get to it. First on iTunes, I, we got a, a very nice comment from someone whose name is in Morse code. I'm sorry I can't read that. Uh, who says, Siskoid and Bass have created a very enjoyable podcast with First Strike. Despite my only passing familiarity with the Invasion storyline, this show is both fun and accessible for me. Now I have to track down these issues. Yes, please do. On Facebook, Roy Cleary said, I did enjoy Mark Shaw and Invasion. And on the blog, where the bulk of the comments are, fwpodcast.com. I'm going to read some samples from the reactions to episode 8 on Manhunter number 8. But if you want to read the whole discussions, and there's some very interesting stuff in there, please go to the website. Let's start with Chris Franklin from The Supermates, who says, Man, I loved me some Manhunter when this series started. I had a buddy who was an even bigger fan, and he went nuts drawing the mask and costume over and over. Doug Rice definitely picked up some of the Japanese influences from Walt Simonson's Paul Kirk Manhunter design and merged them with his own manga leanings. Mark Shaw actually started out as a Manhunter in First Issue Special number 5 by none other than Jack Kirby. Steve Englehart picked up on both Shaw and the Manhunter cult threads and thus gave us the Manhunters as Green Lantern precursors. It was a strange, strange road Shaw was on to get to this series. More like a random Marvel supporting character than a DC one. Thanks for the, the history lesson I'd forgotten about the first issue special. On the matter of whether or not Mark Shaw was on the Arrow show, I had like an inkling that he had been, and it was like vague in my memory. Keith G. Baker confirmed Mark Shaw was a rogue Argus agent in season three. Now remember, they made him into a jerk. And David Ace Gutierrez said, Jens Kate Spencer, the female Manhunter, was the DA in Star City as featured in Arrow. Uh, and I do remember that. And also thought that they never did anything with her unless they've done something with her since. Uh, she appeared like once or twice, I don't even know. And didn't seem to be on track to become Manhunter. Oh well, wasted opportunity. Rob Kelly said, enjoyable episode, gentlemen. I've never read a single issue of Manhunter, but I like the artwork samples you posted. I imagine it was tough having the main character who cannot show emotion. Because that is a problem. You know, even the Iron Man helmet had more emotion than this in comics. The face-off page, he says, reminds me of a similar scene in the cheesy horror movie The Car, where a victim has a face-off with a titular possessed car consisting of rapid cutaways to the grill of a car. Try as they might, the filmmakers could not quite extract any emotion from half of the so-called actors in the scene. Uh, for me, Rob, and uh, of course Rob talks about movies, he's the host of Film & Water podcast, which is a great podcast, you should check it out on our network. 
for me, the best movie or stupidest movie face-off is in Way of the Dragon. The way they cut from Bruce Lee to uh, Chuck Norris to a cat sitting there looking at them about to fight. Bruce, Chuck, cat. Bruce, Chuck, cat. Bruce, Chuck, cat. Cat, 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 cat. When the cat meows, the fight starts. It's incredibly ridiculous. Uh, Diablo Frank says, so here's the thing. Mark Shaw held a lot of potential, had plentiful backstory to play with, and was liked well enough to get repeatedly rescued from death and obscurity. That said, he never fulfilled his promise. His continuity is a train wreck. Everything worthwhile about him should be gifted to a new character, preferably one less represented in comics than white males. Paul Kirk originated virtually every now-cheesy ninja gimmick in comics and serves at best as a reminder to pay tribute to the late Archie Goodwin by leaving everything about his incarnation to the Manhunter in the friggin' ground already. Everyone involved with Chase Lawler, who was like the 90s Manhunter, would likely prefer to his name or forgotten. That leaves Kate Spencer, inheritor of all things Manhunter, plus some extras besides. I'm glad Siskoid likes her, and she has her fans, just not enough of them. And once she switched from prosecutor to defense attorney, she's basically a gender-swapped daredevil. Spencer is a nice occasional utility player to take off the bench when a bigger character needs to lawyer up. Still, no Manhunter here. Now, here's where Frank is Frank. The DC Universe is only big enough to have one Manhunter, and he's from goddamn Mars. Fuck your robots and the endless line of self-inflicted trademark pirates that limp along in one failed series after another. Another. John Jones is your Manhunter. He's got toys, he's got cartoons, he's on live-action television. Eventually, when the DCEU gets its head out of its ass, he'll be in movies. He's the superhero who everyone likes because he's beautifully tragic and eats cookies. He's way more powerful and interesting and versatile and has a stronger story engine and is more well-known as DC's Black hero than Cyborg. Unless they wise up about how boredom, they won't take advantage of Green Lantern and Jon Stewart, so the Martian Manhunter is the best bet at lucrative representation. The Manhunter brand is not Coca-Cola, and 15 different RC Colas destroys the brand. When DC inevitably brings back Miss Martian in some variation on Young Justice or the Teen Titans, hurting her mentor's brand compromises her too. One Manhunter from Mars, except no substitutes. Well, there you go. They're not part of the same... Tradition. But I get your point. Paul Hicks from Waiting for Doom says, One of the things I liked best about Mark Shaw Manhunter series was the tight continuity with Suicide Squad. For example, Mark Shaw would be hired by Amanda Waller to bring in Count Vertigo, and then, in a month or two, Vertigo appears in Belrave Prison and gets added to the squad roster. Same writers in Estrander and Yale, so easy to coordinate but no less satisfying. And I agree. I think that's the main reason I was reading Manhunter and read it to the end was because of that link. In the next few weeks, my podcast, Waiting for Doom, will tackle the invasion crossover issues. No ongoing was impacted more by this event than the Doom Patrol. Consider that a plug. Ange from the uh, Supergirl blog says, I recently found a brick of Manhunter in the dollar box in my local comic store. Having heard a lot about Doug Rice's art on the early issues and the nutty end to the Dumas story... I opted in buying the first seven issues. When this episode hit the feed, I went back to the store and bought it to follow along. I would recommend the Goodwin-Simonson Manhunter from the early 70s. Those stories were put together into a Baxter one-shot, which can be found in dollar boxes as well. So see, if you want some Manhunter, you know some of these lesser lights, you can often find their material at cheaper prices, and the stories are no less good. In fact, they're often better than some of the the more managed, bigger heroes who get a lot of editorial interference and such. So please do make these kinds of discoveries. And I'm just going to end on some uh, Facebook likes and shares. Gene Hendricks, Nicholas Prom, Rob Kelly, Clinton Robison, Alan Middleton, Daniel Budnick, Ryan Daly, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Keith G. Baker, Michelle Fief, David Ace Gutierrez, Robert Ward, Michael Bailey, Rob Gillespie, Coffee Comics Blog. We thank you. Same thing for our Twitter retweeters and favoriters. And here that would be Ange, Comic Reflections, Ed Moore, a.k.a. Ed Moore Jr., a.k.a. Enigo Montoya, a.k.a. Marvel Bronze Age. He is the one who is many. Two True Freaks, Xenozoic Xenophiles, Bad Coffee and Comics, Trekker Talk, Comic Book Insurance, Rick, Willie, Yarbrough, Irredeemable Shag, Earth to Chris, Rolled Spine Podcasts, Hicks, FKA Jason, Saturday Detention, Silver and Gold, Treasury Comics, Lodix, Speed Force, Jim Bao, Lou Varvaris, to all of you, our thanks. It's your support that makes this, if not possible, at least palatable. And now back in time to when Bass was here. Next time on First Strike the Invasion Podcast, Superman number 26.
I mean, because words are just words, but the timing is what makes it funny. I will not tolerate this. <laughs> 